in this episode of What's the Story, Old Glory. Elizabeth talks about her time in court with presidential hopeful Donald Trump. We talk about the results out of the Iowa caucuses. And in past glory, we profile the 18th president, Ulysses S. Grant. Welcome to What's the Story, Old Glory, and beginning our 2024 odyssey, uh, which we are both very much looking forward to. Uh, My name's Todd Muller, and of course, my erstwhile companion beaming in from the other side of the world. Uh, Good morning or afternoon, Elizabeth. Where are you? Uh, It's afternoon here. So at the moment, I am in Chandler, which is a part of Phoenix, Arizona. So yeah, we've we've have, haven't recorded for a while. We've both had an extended break. Um, wonderful Christmas and New Year, and I've been on tour um, across the United States, as in the words of Johnny Cash, I've been everywhere. So started in Nevada, then went to DC, um, where I spent most of my time on Capitol Hill doing some work and also some exploring, which we'll talk to talk about in a bit. Um, been in Maryland, Virginia. California and now I'm in Arizona for an irrigation conference and anyone who's ever been to an irrigation conference knows that it rains so it never rains here in the desert but it's rained steadily for two whole days now so (laughs) a bit waterlogged. Well they'll love that that'll um, uh, help the aquifers and the rivers there which no doubt have been under some stress so uh, Mm -hmm. I'll Mm -hmm. be calling for more of uh, irrigation conferences in the dry parts of America and more of you turning up and talking about New Zealand but we're not going to talk about New Zealand politics which is uh, you know uh, that's not what we cover on this we're obviously uh, as our listeners know two um, US political tragics who just find the US political system so engaging and uh, interesting. And and we all know that this year, 2024, is going to be perhaps one of the most extraordinary years in political uh, history. It's hard to know where to start, but why don't we kick off um, with one of the highlights of your trip? You said um, one of your travels, you found yourself uh, in DC uh, and excitingly found yourself in a courtroom uh, or at least the overflow of a courtroom when a certain Donald J. Trump uh, was the defendant uh, in the other room. Tell us about that, Elizabeth. What an extraordinary experience that must have been. Um, step us through. What was it like? What was the atmosphere like? Um, and what was the issue that was being debated? Uh, one of Trump's many legal uh, issues. Um, tell us more about it. Yeah, well, there is so much going on with Trump's legal issues that actually it's hard to keep track of the news cycle in that respect over here. But um, I walked into the office on the Monday morning a um, uh, couple of weeks back, and one of my colleagues uh, talked about um, Trump arriving in town because that morning as well, the heavens had just opened and it was pouring, pouring rain. It was a really, really cold winter day in D.C., Um, And I said, oh, I didn't know that Donald Trump was in town. And he said, yes, yes, he's appearing in court today. So I quickly um, got on the computer and discovered that uh, oral arguments were being heard by the um, US Federal Court and the District of Columbia Circuit. Um, 
uh, oral arguments as to whether Trump is immune from prosecution in relation to the activities he undertook after the um, 2020 election results came out, which led to the January 6th insurrection on at the Capitol. And so, um, as I say, he was appearing in DC. He came came to town for the day. He um, they had uh, a courtroom available for um, for. The, the substantive hearing itself and they anticipated large crowds so there was an overflow courtroom so members of the public were allowed to attend as well as media so I was fortunate enough to get into the court building um, I couldn't get into the same courtroom as Trump unfortunately but I was able to go into the overflow courtroom which was also full so I felt very fortunate to be able to do that there were media from all around the world there um, camped out outside Asia Europe the UK um, and of course, all the major US stations as well, hoping to get a gl glimpse of Trump, which we didn't because he came and went by an underground parking garage in his um, convoy of his motorcade of, of black SUVs. Um, but no, it was it was fascinating. So it was interesting to be outside. There were protesters there. I got to talk to someone who some of them who will hear from and also hearing the arguments of the um, of the lawyers in the case and hearing what the judges had to say. They've reserved their decision, so we don't have a result. It'll probably end up in the Supreme Court, but it was just yeah, a fascinating glimpse into all the um, legal issues and dramas that are going to play out this year before we even get to November and the substantive election itself. Extraordinary. That must have been incredible. And my understanding is it related particularly to this conversation. So, look, all I want to do is this. I just want to find uh, 11,780 votes, which is one more than we have, because we won the state. That was when the president rang the Secretary of State for Georgia and said, find me some votes. Now, that mm -hmm. seems to my uh, recollection, my um, view, um, pretty obviously trying to uh, distort an election result. What was the president's team's defense of that remarkable conversation? Find me 11,300 votes so I can win. Yes, yeah, so Trump has run this immunity argument in several of his of his legal battles that he's facing. And so essentially what he's saying is that anything that he did in relation to all of these events was as in his role as, as the President of the United States. So as the um as the top executive officer of the country, he's saying that up until the inauguration day, he was still president, so anything he was doing was in his role as president. Specifically in relation to the 2020 election results, he still claims that that was a stolen election, and anything he did was to uphold election integrity. And so therefore, he was perfectly entitled to do that in his role as president, and that was one of his, his one of the roles that he fulfills as, as president is to uphold that election integrity, rather than the other way around, which is what his opponents see. They say he was tampering with election integrity and doing the exact opposite. Um, his lawyers have said that um, he's immune from prosecution. There's sort of a couple of limbs to their legal arguments. So one is, is that, that he was upholding his duties um, as president. The other one is that because he has faced a an impeachment trial in the Senate and was not convicted by the Senate, therefore he can't be guilty of a crime 
in the in the criminal courts outside of the um, political system. They say that if, in fact, uh, he was found not guilty by the Senate, which he was, and then was prosecuted in, in the criminal courts, that's a, that's a form of double jeopardy, which is a legal proposition that says you can't be tried for the same crime yeah, twice. Of, of course, yeah. if he was prosecuted by the Senate, then he would, they're saying that he would then be able to be prosecuted outside um, of the political system. And to me, that's double jeopardy as well. So yes. they're trying, for me, it sounds like they're trying to have it both ways. And interestingly, the, those oral arguments were, were run in front of a panel of three judges and a couple of the, two of the judges are Democratic appointees, one is a Republican appointee, and the two Democratic um, appointees on the bench were clearly uh, not happy with Trump's attorneys and the arguments that they were running. One of them asked one of Trump's attorneys about six times um, whether if it weren't for the immunity question that they were running, argument that they were running, whether it would in fact be a viable prosecution. And he didn't want to answer that question um, and, he, and he hedged the whole time. So it was it was a really interesting um, um, legal process to be, to be able to witness. It seems very thin legal um, uh, defence um, saying that essentially the president can act with impunity is essentially the core of the argument. Uh, and, and and then that technical argument that you've brilliantly summarised, which says, look, the Senate's already looked at my behaviour and said I'm fine. So therefore, um, everything that I've done um, doesn't matter because you can't try me, you can't go me a second time for the same thing which is uh, really interesting. Um, now you, And you... That's, that's essentially what the, what the judges asked as well. They asked Trump's counsel several times that where do you draw the line at presidential behaviour? They said that if a sitting president was to order the assassination of a political rival, could you argue that they were, for, you know, for whatever reason, immune from prosecution um, if they weren't found guilty by the Senate? That's the argument that, that, yes. that the judges were countering Trump's counsel with. And so your sense is that um, however this plays, those three judges obviously reserve their decision, they'll make a decision, however it goes, it gets appealed to the Supreme Court. So the Supreme Court, which as we know, is the ultimate court of the land, seven members, uh, but quite a Republican or right wing uh, or a conservative, uh, probably a better description, um, majority on that uh, court. Uh, is there an expectation that uh, obviously it will end up there, but they will that they will um, uh, hear this case and make a call on it, and indeed the others that are pending within the next few months? Is this is there assumption in America that this gets resolved one way or the other by the Supreme Court prior to the election? Um, so. Uh, I think, to use another legal phrase, I think the jury's probably out. Um, the Because there are so many legal proceedings and they're all happening at the same time, um, uh, some of them are going to get resolved before the election, but some of them will not. And um, the question really is, well, if Trump gets prosecuted, gets found guilty of any of these, even if it's just one of the 90-something charges he's facing that, that um, incurs a... a um, a prison sentence, what's going to happen then? A sitting president can't serve from prison. He'll either be freed and then have to go back to prison if, if he is elected, or he would pardon himself, which it seems he's he's um, 
able to do. One of the other key questions that it's that, that there is is what we t spoke to Professor Lindquist about before Christmas is about whether he can even appear on ballots at all. So Colorado have said that he cannot because um, because of the uh, Article Three of the Fourteenth Amendment, um, and that's still going through the courts as well. So there's a lot a lot of legal stuff to go under the bridge. Um, before November, and every time Trump appears in court, or um, it's basically like a Trump rally in terms yeah. of he gets a bump, he gets a bump in the polls every time something happens in court. So yeah. that's that'll be one of the reasons yeah, he came to DC. He didn't need to be there that day. He could have been in Iowa campaigning, but it attracts his, it, it, it garners it's his supporters support. just as much as just as much as a Trump rally does. So he turns up, as, he, as you say, because it lifts him in the polls and in many respects reinforces for many that he's a political martyr. But you spoke to a couple outside the court who had a very different view of the man and his impact on America and risk for the future. What, what brings you here today? Well, I'm hoping to be at least like a, a drop of water a, a adding to uh, what went on inside. To, you know, to tell Donald Trump, no, you are not immune uh, from criminal actions. Today, I, I wanted to be part of this because I, I think today will go down as Donald Trump's Waterloo. Yep. You know, the point, the first time in his life, he's actually held to account for, you know, uh, his criminal actions. I mean, I guess he's also being held in New York, yep. you know, for his, his shady business dealings. But this, as far as actual crimes, um, uh, so... Uh, yeah, it, it just irked me for so long that he just was able to get away and delay and delay and delay. But today, regardless of who appointed the judges there, um, uh, you know, following the Constitution, he, he will find out the same way Richard Nixon found out when Richard Nixon said, um, if the president does it, it's legal. Well, no, that was not the case in Watergate, and he learned it the hard way. And Donald Trump is going to learn it the hard way, that you can't try to steal an election and get away with it. So you've got a sign that says, we elect presidents, not kings, no immunity for Trump's crimes. Um, there was a lot of discussion in there today about the, about Nixon, um, and the, the argument seemed to be that because he wasn't impeached, he therefore shouldn't be prosecuted. Oh, you mean because Trump wasn't impeached? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I don't think that follows the Constitution at all. I mean, one, uh, uh, it, it shouldn't be, but it really is you know, impeachment is a political process because it really depends on, particularly in the modern era, it depends on the makeup of Congress. It'd be nice if that wasn't the case, but that is the case. Uh, this is a criminal indictment, you know, for actual crimes, you know, in trying to steal an election and, and it, like five different ways to Sunday to steal an election. Um, you know, he's going to find out, you know, he, he said the other day, like, oh, no one told me that, you know, that this, you know, this was criminalized. It's like, give me a break, you know, and actually all sorts of people told him, you know, that uh, the same way they told him he has to return the, the purloined uh, uh, secret documents he was stashing away in his bathroom at Mar-a-Lago. People told him he needed to return them, and he didn't, you know, but, um, and he's good. I think he, he will eventually find out that he's not going to get away with that either. But. I, I expected there to be a lot more Trump supporters here today. Do you think it's the weather that's kept them away, or are they all in Iowa? Um, yeah, I only heard the one guy who's being very loud with uh, the, you know, playing the music and stuff. Um, yeah, I guess the rain just kept him away. You know. Oh, well, thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate okay, it. Okay, thank you so much. Um, so what's brought you here today? Uh, well, uh, today is the hearing where uh, they decide if 
Trump gets uh, immunity. So to me, that's ridiculous. I mean, it, what he did hasn't happened here since the Civil War, nothing like that. To me, it's outrageous. I, I just, you know, I, I mean, for me, that's, that's what I feel. I just, I think that he's corrupt. I think he's a criminal. He's a traitor, you know? I mean, what, what, what else could you call him? He's a traitor. So you think that uh, there's definitely no immunity for him for the acts that he undertook to try and subvert know, the 2020 election? If he did that, I mean, we'd, we'd have no accountability. See, they have nothing but lies, that's why. They have no case to get to let Trump go. I mean, he's a criminal. He is, I mean, he's the, he's the only, he's the closest thing to a traitor we've had. Except maybe Bush, the Bush does. But, I mean, he takes the prize, Trump takes the prize. There's never been anyone like this. I mean, the things he said on TV, I mean, it's obvious he's not, he's not, uh, He's not keeping anything secret. So. I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, so those were two um, two gentlemen protesters that I spoke to outside the court. We'll put up some photos of them on our social media. They had placards and um, uh, they were very vocal about what they thought about Trump, as you heard there. One of them uh, I had to cut down significantly because some of the things he was saying um, were bordering on defamatory of people that are currently sitting so I didn't I didn't want to put that on our podcast um and and uh and it was interesting that there weren't any Trump supporters there that day but that might be because it's Washington DC that's not traditionally where his base is and it was absolutely pouring with rain as you could hear in the audio there so um there weren't any Trump supporters on the ground but but Trump protesters absolutely in terms of Trump supporters, they were out in droves despite the snow uh, in Iowa. The first of the uh, primaries of the year, this is a caucusing approach and we've discussed the different models in previous podcasts. Now you were going to go um, and um, the weather beat you back, but that's probably good because otherwise we wouldn't be having this conversation. You'd still be in Iowa. Uh, <laughs> some Your impressions of uh, that incredible time, including the weather, would be interesting to give you a sense, give us a sense of when it's bad weather in America, what that looks like. It certainly shades our bad weather. Uh, and um, Trump's remarkable um, stroll to victory. Yeah, so the um, we had the first um, uh, primary event of the year, like you say, of the election cycle, which was the Iowa caucuses um, on the 15th of January. I had uh, intended to be there, as we told our um, listeners, uh, events conspired against me though, and I managed, and I'm, and it meant that I didn't get to be there. And it's a good, probably a good thing, like you say, because it was the coldest ever Iowa caucuses on records on record. So the temperature, there was a massive snowstorm that came through the eastern and midwestern states that week. Um, temperatures plummeted to negative forty degrees Celsius, actually negative forty something degrees Fahrenheit. It's where the two scales intersect. Actually, um, the weather events were described as life threatening. Um, it was instant frostbite material if you had any skin exposed if you went out in that weather. Uh, so we were not prepared with the c correct kind of gear to be able to be walking the streets of Des Moines um, to get to some of those uh, caucusing sites. And we may not have even been able to get in and out on transport either because it was just a, 
just an extreme weather event. They had been expecting there to be record voter turnout um, because Iowa is such a politically active state and um, the candidates, these are the Republican candidates, um, particularly Ron DeSantis had been doing a lot of campaigning in Iowa, had spent a lot of money up there. Um, and uh, it turned out to be a very low turnout because of the weather. Um, Trump did go to Iowa and he did do some campaigning up there. Um, he told his supporters that even though uh, there was a risk to their lives if they went out and voted on caucus night, um, they should do it anyway because it would be worth it. Extraordinary. I mean, 100,000 people still braved minus 42 yep, votes. Yep, 118,000. Which yep. is just extraordinary. And we touched this, touched on this on an earlier podcast. This is the caucuses is when they physically go to a hall uh, and mm -hmm. decide which corner of the hall, which banner to go and stand under and be counted. Uh, and yep. uh, so 118,000 people did it. Uh, the results, um, Donald Trump, remarkably, 50% um, of the vote. That's the best. Romped home to victory. Home. And that's the best um, result uh, for um, in, a, in an Iowa caucus for, um, you know, uh, free candidates, if you like. Although it's, I guess it's a it's a bit it, you can't really call Trump a free candidate. I mean, he's not an incumbent president, but he's been a president, of course. But mm. still, when you think of the what appeared to be uh, the low uh, point of his um, presidency, the the January the sixth riots, uh, the, the the initial abhorrence and response by the Republican Party that this man just simply has to be, um, you know, we just have to move on from him. But here we are, he's being endorsed, and 50% of Iowans say he's our man. Um, uh, what were the other significant results and impacts uh, for the other candidates standing against him? Mm, so uh, Trump got first overall. Um, second, and I think it was around 20%, was Ron DeSantis. And then Nikki Haley came in third. Um, Trump won every single county except one, which went to Haley. Um, so if you look at the map of Iowa, it's all it's all blocked out for Trump except one little county, which 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 voted in favour of Haley. Um, as we've talked about before, the saying goes that campaigns can die in an Iowa cornfield, and that's what happened to Vivek Ramaswamy, who pulled out just before the caucuses started, and Ron DeSantis, who has now pulled out of the race and endorsed Trump after Iowa. Now, although that. It's, people might say, why Why did he do that when he came second and Haley's still there when she came third? Well, Ron DeSantis had put all his eggs in the Iowa basket. Um, his political action committee, his super PAC, had sunk something like $35 million of campaign money into Iowa. Wow. And he hadn't replicated it anywhere else. So to have to spend that much money and have, um, although he came second, it, it was nowhere close to Trump. And so the feeling was, you know, the general consensus is there, he had no clear path to victory. Mm. Um, Haley, you could say the same for her. However, she's polling pretty high in New Hampshire, which is the next primary, which is um, today as we record. Um, and her support is growing. So where, where Ron DeSantis's support has been, um, it, it started, I think, May last year, back on about 50% of Republican supporters, and it's just dropped every week ever since. Haley's has done the opposite, and it's steadily growing. So she probably still doesn't have a clear path, but she's um, she's got a lot of support in New Hampshire, and 
if she wins that state, her support could grow by people who say, okay, maybe she does have a shot, maybe maybe I'll vote for her. And it could also be that people um, in, in those states where there are open primaries, where Democrats and independents are allowed to vote in the Republican primaries, um, they may they may vote for for Haley to try and keep Trump off the ballot. Um, she's also got a home state, South Carolina, but it's the, from what the polls say over here at the moment and what the pundits are saying on TV, it's unlikely that she'll win it. Trump's just just um, polling too high in that state, but but we shall see. So we started this podcast um, in October, and. Uh, we anchored our first uh, podcast off the Republican debate, which had all the candidates except Trump. And we joked at the time that it was a full stage, I think sort of seven or eight candidates. Uh, and they were the ones that were qualified by virtue of the support and money. There were a number of other candidates that were in the mix that uh, uh, didn't quite make the campaign stage, uh, the debate stage. And here we are, after the first of the um, uh, primaries, in this case, the Iowa caucuses, and we are down to two, uh, mm -hmm. quite possibly. Uh, and our next podcast, when we reflect on the New Hampshire result, uh, we will be down to one, uh, Donald J. Trump. Uh, quite extraordinary um, uh, process. And then, um, but as you say, it's not over yet. It's possible uh, that there is a slim pathway for Nikki Haley, and we'll talk about that in our next podcast. But of course, you've been—you know—you said in your uh, tour of duty, you—you've um, <laughs> been around the country. Uh, obviously, you're in DC in a courtroom. But tell me the story, please, of uh, getting to uh, uh, House of Representatives, Congress, the Capitol Building. Uh, I've been there many years ago, uh, and as you could imagine, just loved it. It's what it feels like you're walking around uh, ancient Rome. Uh, I mean, mm. They ev evoke that sense of uh, history and empire. It's quite fascinating, really. I think that you know uh, the new Republic of America in the late 1700s and early 1800s uh, deliberately, uh, you know, copied its capital. Um, um, you know, drawing on the Roman tradition, but. It has been a lockdown place for months, for years, actually, a couple of years since, um, three years since the January the 6th uh, riot. But tell us about its reopening and your um, uh, visit to the home of uh, American power. Yeah, so the, the Capitol building itself is much changed in terms of access and things from what it used to be, firstly from September 11th and secondly from the January 6th riots, both have had an effect on where people can go. So for a while you've been able to go on public tours of the of certain parts of the building um, and on certain days people were able to go in the um, gallery of the Senate. So the Capitol building has the famous dome in the middle um, and we'll put some pictures up on, on our social media so people can see what we're talking about for those that can't picture it but the dome in the middle then on the on the northern side of the building is the senate so the upper house and then on the um, southern side of the building is the house of representatives which is the um, which makes up the other half of congress which is like our parliament um, so but the house of representatives itself has been closed to the public I, it may even be as back as far as september 11 it's been it's been closed for a long long time and it only reopened to certain members of the public in november and i was lucky enough 
to visit and stand on the house floor um, in December. So one of the first non um, staffers and and politicians in the states, um, and possibly the first New Zealander to stand on the house floor for uh, for many many years. So I felt very privileged and very excited, and I I, I can only thank one of my tour hosts for arranging that because um, his partner is a is a staffer um, works on the hill for one of the representatives there, and so she she got us in. So it was an amazing opportunity to stand next. I couldn't take any photos because that's you're not allowed to take photos in there, but you'll just have to take my word for it. Amazing, huge painting of George Washington on one side of the speaker's seat and um, and the Marquis de Lafayette on the other. Um, and like New Zealand Parliament and the Australian Parliament, probably every Parliament in the world, it feels a lot smaller when you're in there than it yes. looks on TV. Mm. Everyone's very close together. And they don't have demarcated sides of the house like the A's and the no- eyes and the nose like we have in New Zealand. Um, they do have the aisle and they talk about crossing the aisle, but it's essentially you can sit wherever you like. They don't have designated seats. Oh, right. So, so yeah. you know, in my political days, I had my little uh, seat with my little name on it. And, um, yep. you know, although you very rarely sat at it because, you know, <laughs> there was always people uh, away. So you ended up being moved to be close to the action. Um, and so that doesn't happen. You just, you just, and there's no, you know, like in the British uh, House of Commons where uh, there's no, there's no formal place, but seniority counts if you're a front bench or as in the, you know, mm. uh, in the front bench, literally. And uh, you can put your name up um, and reserve a seat um, if you're in by a certain time and all that sort of stuff. Does that work or is it literally a free for all? So there's no seniority. It's- it's literally a free for all, but there's, uh, you know, the uh, how would you describe it? There's a hierarchy, I guess, in terms of people who have been there a while have their favourite seats, and yes. you probably get a bit of trouble with your party if you sit in someone else's seat. But like, for instance, I was told a story about two politicians, and I'm sorry, I can't remember their names, but they were from opposite sides of the house, a Democrat and a Republican, and they always sat together in every session. Um, so they were political opponents, but friends in real life. So they sat next to each other every day. Well, that's, I could think of a few people on the other side of the aisle that I wouldn't have mind, uh, sitting, uh, next to, although sort of figuratively you were, thanks to s- <laughs> signal, uh, you could quietly, uh, engage as if, um, you were <laughs> friends, uh, and no one knew. Oh, look, that's, <clears throat> that's a fantastic, uh, I've never been on the floor. Uh, and you know, I've been looking down on it from the gallery, but I've never been on the floor. That's a tremendous uh, experience for you, and um, thank you for sharing it. Our, our segments always uh, include um, past glories, and um, uh, you have chosen a president who has, you know, a pretty profound impact on the United States. So, uh, share with us who you have chosen. Uh, Elizabeth, for um, a past glory uh, segment today. Yeah, so I um, decided to pick my president today based on the first presidential monument that I came across when I was in DC on this trip. So first day there, I walked up to the Capitol. Sure. What did I say? You said you said you the first um, uh, (laughs) monument. Monument. It must be Washington. You're going to talk about. Yeah. No, it isn't. So um, there's there's so many there's so many presidential statues and monuments all around DC, right across Federal Triangle and the National Mall. And when one walks down from walks 
west towards the Washington Monument from the Capitol building. The first um, president that, that you come across is Ulysses S. Grant. Um, the 18th president, he has a wonderful statue of him on horseback, which was one of his favorite things to do was to ride his horse. And it's a beautiful statue. And particularly at um, dusk, the the fading light hits, hits his face and hits his horse's face on the statue. And it sits above the reflection pole in front of the, the Capitol. And I just think I, I love it as a statue. So that's the that's who I decided to do today is um, Hiram Ulysses Grant. Right. So what was that first name again? Hiram. So his name is um, commonly known as Ulysses S. Grant. And this was a fun fact that I learned when I was researching that I didn't know. So he was born in 1822 and his parents couldn't decide uh, what what name he should have. So they came up with a whole long list of them and threw all these names in a hat and pulled out Ulysses. Um, which was his middle name. Hiram was a family name, and so that was his given name. But he always went by Ulysses. Interestingly, when he was a teenager, he um, he enlisted to go to West Point Military Academy. Um, and uh, the person that, that um, uh, sponsored his application put, a, put an error on his application form and actually wrote down his name as Ulysses S. Grant. Um, and so from that day on, his nickname became Sam for Uncle Sam, U.S. Grant. So it stuck with him all his life. And we still call him Ulysses S. Grant today, even though there is no S in his name. It was a nickname. <laughs> That's a great fun fact. And so a pretty famous Civil War uh, general, eh? That's right. So his parents were both fervent abolitionists. Um, and although he wasn't an abolitionist, abolitionist himself, he was, um, he didn't, he wasn't comfortable with, with slavery. Um, and like I say, he was an excellent horseman, but he didn't actually want to join the military. He wanted to become a teacher. Uh, after he finished West Point Academy, though, he was assigned to the infantry and distinguished himself in, in the uh, Mexican-American War, which started in 1846. He um, considered that the war was morally unjust, and he later said that the Civil War was divine retribution from God for U.S. aggression against Mexico. Mm, That's interesting. That is. Um, after, after the war, he... Um, he started up several failed businesses, including selling firewood on a street corner, and he developed a serious drinking habit. Um, so he wasn't a very good businessman. Um, after the, after the Mexican-American War, he was given a slave by his father-in-law, but he disliked, his, he disliked slavery so much that he freed his slave, whose name was William Jones, and it came at a cost to Grant of um, what would be today around $33,000, even though he was broke. That's how much it cost him to free his slave. Wow. Uh, he moved to Illinois, finally had some employment success in leather goods. Um, and then when the Civil War broke out, he was an early volunteer um, and he quickly moved up the ranks. As you say, he fought in many famous battles, um, was promoted to general and eventually led the Union forces. Um, he he was the general that um, took General Lee's uh, surrender from the South. And after the war was finished, he said that he believed the Southern cause was one of the worst for which people have ever fought. So de the defense of slavery. 
Um, so he was a supporter of Lincoln and a close friend. They were, and he was one of Lincoln's cabinet advisors. One of the places I went to in DC that I learned a lot about this was Ford's Theatre, which was the place where um, Lincoln was assassinated. So Grant was actually, and it was people, particularly overseas, commonly know about John Wilkes Booth, who was the um, assassin that, that murdered Lincoln. But it was actually a group of conspiracists. Mm. So there was a, a large conspiracy to kill Lincoln, to kidnap Lincoln. Um, and uh, then it turned into a plot to assassinate him, but also a lot of his cabinet as well. And Grant was one of the people on the hit list. So he was meant to be at Ford's Theatre that night in the in the um, box with Lincoln, but he decided at the last moment that he wanted to go visit his kids with his wife instead. So he wasn't there. So that, that decision saved his life probably. Um, after Lincoln was murdered, he became a cabinet advisor to a friend and advisor outside cabinet to the new president, Andrew Johnson, who he was friends with. But they eventually fell out rather spectacularly over policies to do with reconstruction, which was how to bring the country back together after the Civil War. And eventually their animosity led to Johnson's um, uh, impeachment and a Senate trial. So he's one of the only other presidents apart from Trump and Lincoln to have been impeached. No, not Lincoln. Did I say Lincoln? Yep. <laughs> we'll cut that. Yeah. One of the, I meant to say Clinton. Yes. What, so Johnson was impeached, um, one of the only presidents along with um, Trump and Clinton. So Grant then became the Republican National um, Con um, Party's candidate uh, for the election of 1868. He won by a landslide victory, won the Electoral College um, 214 votes to 80. Um, at the time, he was the youngest ever president at age 46. And um, one of the things that won him the popular vote was uh, all of the black votes that went his way, over 500,000 of them, so emancipated slaves who, for the first time, had the franchise. So he oversaw reconstruction of the country, as I say. He was considered a very effective civil rights president. Um, he effectively crushed the, the KKK in the South. And he forced southern states to allow black people to serve on juries, hold office, be able to vote, own property. Um, this included things like um, suspending the writ of habeas corpus and dispatching troops to ensure that the states were doing what they were told. He served two terms, succeeded by Rutherford B. Hayes. And although he um, his first term was very successful in terms of reconstruction, that program project faltered in his second term and there was a period of great economic instability um, and his um, second term was um, blighted by charge, um, you know, rumours of corruption and things that weren't necessarily anything bad that he was doing but that his, his cronies and the people around him were that he was unable to stop. After he left office in 1877 he said he was never so happy in my life is to be leaving leaving office as president. He left office basically poor because it was a very lowly paid position. Um, and his son established a failed investment company, which we would call today a Ponzi scheme, um, which set off the panic of 1884 in the stock exchange um, during the economic depression of the, the 1880s. So his legacy is mixed. Um, 
although he did a lot for reconstruction and the civil rights uh, movement in America, he's often seen as being corrupt and, and, and effectively a poor manager of the economy, just as he was as a poor manager of his own personal finances. Uh, he died in 1885, aged 63, of throat cancer. Mm. Wrote um, um, some pretty impressive memoirs. Uh, he did, yeah. Uh, and was he assisted by Mark Twain, I think, by that? Or it's, I, I, there's some sort of link there, but they were uh, yeah. they were completely, um, I mean, they, they secured his family's future after his death, I understand, but they, they were not, they were unlike anything that had ever been done before. It was very much a first-person uh, narrative of his life and particular battles in the Civil War and his philosophy. It was... Uh, compelling reading and um, uh, you know I, I would put him in certainly the top half of uh, US presidents poss possibly even the top quarter uh, and mm. impact on uh, definitely the top quarter actually in terms of impact on America um, uh, which I think is the lens you've got to look at it through so thank you for that that mm. tremendous um, uh, historical figure uh, and I love your description of his statues. I know this sounds very conservative, mm. and those listening who know me will probably think this is very <laughs> but uh, I, I find it sad we don't do statues anymore. No, we well, don't do statues um, anymore. And, I, you know, sometimes I think, um, you know, I think that they're, they're, they're good, but, you know, perhaps that's... You know, aside from, the, aside from the who gets to be on the statue, yeah. I love statues too. I Monuments, and there's so many around around um, Washington DC. It's awesome. Some of them are hilarious, though. Like there'll be um, there's there's a few on the lawn opposite the White House, and um, them you know people like figures like Rochambeau and Lafayette and that sort of thing, and they're wearing their full military garb, very proud, wonderful statue. And often there's a woman sort of draped over the bottom of the statue, half naked in Romanesque kind of attire and it, it's quite a quite a contrast I'm, I mean they're, they're amazing statues I'm, I'm, not, sure I see them like that I'm not sure I see the problem with that, to be honest I, I, I think um, I, I've it's just lost, weird I've like... probably lost all listener support now with that <laughs> uh, that sounds totally fine but um, uh, you're right I mean it's it's very very sort of uh, old world evocative kind of uh, uh, design but um, we don't seem to have them anymore. Um, okay. So one of the places that we visited when we were in Washington, D.C. was the Arlington National Cemetery, which is an amazing place. Um, it's got thousands of um, graves there, including the grave of JFK, um, which was very sombre that has an eternal flame burning. And we also went to see the Tomb of the Unknown Soldiers, which has a soldier from every conflict from the Civil War through to... Um, through to the Korean War, um, and they have a guard permanently there um, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and they change guards every hour in an elaborate military ceremony, which is steeped in history and tradition, and it's um, quite a humbling um, place to be. And those are some of the things that, that America does that, that look a um, in terms of like their devotion to flag and country, we may find a bit baffling from the outside looking in, but but they take it very seriously. And it's when you're there as part of it, it's quite it's quite moving. Yeah. I saw I also saw the original Star Spangled Banner, the flag that the anthem was written for, 
and it's enormous it's like the size of a rugby field kind of thing it's just that's a slight exaggeration but it is huge they took up multiple rooms in a house when they sewed it so it's that sort of thing over a fort wasn't it oh well thank you that's a fantastic um it's been a fantastic episode. Thoroughly enjoyed your uh, updates from uh, Iowa and DC uh, and a great president to reflect on Ulysses S. Grant. And uh, our next podcast, we will be uh, ch- chatting to Jason Emmett um, and reflecting on the results of the New Hampshire uh, primary. Uh, so until then, uh, it's uh, goodbye from me, Todd Muller. And goodbye from me, Elizabeth Sol. What's the Story Old Glory is written, produced, edited and presented by Elizabeth Sol and Todd Muller for Old Glory Casting. Our cover art is by Caitlin at Studio Naylor. Our theme music is Shootout at Sundown by Del Boney. You can find us on all the usual social media channels at Old Glory Pod and send us your questions to oldglorypod at gmail.com.